Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Nuclear waste is out of sight, out of mind for most of us, but Congress needs to act before it is safely and permanently stored away. Also, a humble marine mollusk with a big medical future. So I'll show you some of our up-and-coming limpets right here. So if you take a look in this tank, these guys are, are fairly slow growing, but you can see them. These guys are about three and a half years old or so. The keyhole limpet may be key to new vaccines and using music to explain Greenland's melting ice sheets. When you take the time to actually listen to it, you experience what's actually happening in a way that's more visceral and has a different kind of an impact than if you just look at a graph. Art in partnership with science to tell the story of our changing climate. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's been two and a half years since a tsunami severely damaged the Fukushima nuclear power complex in Japan, and authorities are still struggling to contain the radioactivity from the related meltdown. Now they are reporting some 300 tons of highly contaminated water has recently leaked into the ground, prompting them to issue the gravest warning since the early days of the disaster. This news prompted us to look at the U.S. nuclear power program, particularly the unsettled question of what to do with tons of radioactive spent fuel. Back in the 1980s, Yucca Mountain in Nevada was chosen as the nation's nuclear waste dump, but widespread resistance has stalled the project. The waste is still with us, though, and Ed Lyman, the nuclear expert at the Union of Concerned Scientists, says that's a problem. The Department of Energy was supposed to take title to the nuclear waste generated at nuclear power plants by 1998. That hasn't happened, and that waste is continuing to accumulate at dozens of reactor sites around the country today. Without the Yucca Mountain Project, where else can uh, nuclear power operators in the United States turn for nuclear waste storage? Well, unfortunately, the process for siting a location for a geologic repository has to be started all over again, and that's what the Obama administration has proposed. But what they've said is that the process that chose Yucca Mountain in the first place was so fatally flawed that we need to take lessons from that experience in moving forward. At the time when the law was passed, Nevada was a very politically weak state, and the other states simply ganged up on it and said, you have to take this repository. Well, that didn't work so well, and now the tables have turned with Senator Harry Reid as the most powerful person in the Senate. So, uh, you know, political winds change, but nuclear waste remains. And so the problem is, how do you find a politically and technically equitable solution that will achieve the goals of securing this waste for the hundreds of thousands of years that it needs to be secured? So let's talk about where our nuclear waste, that is from nuclear power plants, is currently being stored. Well, there are more than uh, 60 operating reactor sites each of which has a substantial quantity of nuclear waste. And there are a number of shutdown reactors as well, which have legacy spent fuel as well. And these are scattered all over the country. Most reactor sites are in the uh, east of the Mississippi, but there are quite a few in the west as well. 
Most of the spent fuel is stored in swimming pool type structures called spent fuel pools. And these are concrete steel-lined pools filled with water, and the fuel is submerged under there. However, many of these pools have been overstuffed over the years because there's been no place to send them outside the reactor sites. How secure are these cooling pools? The pools themselves have a lot of problems, especially now that they are stuffed well beyond their original design capacity. The biggest threat is if there's an event that causes a rapid loss of water from the pool, like a large earthquake or even a terrorist attack that could breach the pool liner. If the water level goes below the tops of the uh, fuel assemblies, then there's a potential that they could heat up and actually catch fire. And then you could have a very large release of radioactivity from one of these pools. Now the utilities have started to build what they call dry casks, which are concrete and steel casks which are set out on a parking lot. And once fuel has been cooled for several years, it's safe to be stored in these casks. Now, as I understand it, uh, when the tsunami uh, hit Fukushima and uh, led to the meltdown of one of the reactors there, there was a moment where they might have lost control of their cooling pools as well? Yes, actually, they did lose control. In fact, one of the reactors, Unit 4, lost uh, a great deal of water for some reason at the beginning. And it took them several days to find a way in which they could start getting water back into the pools. If they were not able to do that successfully, then there is the possibility that Unit 4 could have had uh, the type of fire that I talked about. But what we have to remember is that the U.S. spent fuel pools, on average, have much, much more waste in them than even the, the Unit 4 pool of Fukushima. What are the public health risks of all this nuclear waste from power plants? Well, in, in the event of a fire in a spent fuel pool, you could actually have a larger release of uh, cesium-137 than we saw even during the Fukushima disaster. And we could actually cover an area of probably hundreds of square miles with contamination, and ultimately you could have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people exposed to unacceptable radiation levels. And, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's own recent study found that you could have potentially hundreds or, or thousands of cancer deaths resulting from such an accident. So it really is imperative that we move spent fuel into safer dry cast storage as soon as possible to reduce the risk of a large release like that. Now, in an attempt to deal with some of these issues, there's a bipartisan group of senators who have submitted a bill called the Nuclear Waste Administration Act. Could you describe that uh, legislation for us, what it would do if it were enacted? That legislation would create a new authority for managing uh, nuclear waste outside of the Department of Energy, which a lot of people believe is necessary to, to make progress. And it would actually begin the process for what's called consent-based siting for both consolidated interim storage sites above ground and a geologic repository in the, in the future. But one has to be very careful uh, that you don't have a process which is essentially bribing a disadvantaged community to take nuclear waste. I mean, from an ethical point of view, that's very questionable. Edwin Lyman is a senior scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for talking to me.
Now, President Obama has touted natural gas as a valuable bridge fuel to transition to renewable energy. But there's a catch the president doesn't mention, the methane that leaks from oil and gas wells. Methane is about 25 times more powerful than CO2 as a global warming gas, and nobody knows for sure how much of it is actually leaking. Well, Tony Ingrafia is trying to find out. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Cornell University. His lab models the failures that lead to methane leaks. Welcome to Living on Earth. Good to be with you, Steve. Thank you. So tell me, why is it so difficult to figure out just how many natural gas wells are leaking? There are approximately 4.2 million oil and gas wells in North America alone. And although many of those that are recent are inspected, it's very difficult to keep up with that kind of a backlog. And we don't really have a count for how many are leaking. And more importantly, we don't have a measure of how much methane is leaking from all those leaking wells. Now, you've asserted that natural gas wells are are leaking at a dangerous rate, but the EPA uh, reported back in April that production-related methane emissions are actually down, even as the amount of drilling has skyrocketed. What do you make of this? Let me rephrase your question. The EPA reported that their estimates of EPA emissions are down. Neither the EPA nor any objective independent entity has ever measured methane emissions across the board. We do not know. It's uh, the analogy, although not perfect, is you're balancing your checkbook this month, but you don't know how much you started with. So you can deceive yourself into thinking your checkbook is balanced. You know how much came in this month and how much went out that month. But at the end of the month, you really don't know how much money you have in the bank. So what's the small percentage of escaping methane that uh, obviates the advantage of natural gas in your view? If that leak rate is anything more than about 2% of the total production of natural gas, then there's no benefit. There's certainly no immediate benefit to changing over from coal to natural gas for electricity generation. So how realistic is it to think that we can build a natural gas well without leaking methane? It's not realistic at all to assert that any oil or gas well can be constructed and maintained in such a way over its lifetime without it ever leaking. Why? Any human-made structure will eventually degrade to a point where it's no longer maintaining its original design function. What's the fundamental vulnerability of a well? The most vulnerable part uh, of a well is the cement in the well. So you drill a hole through rock and you emplace in that hole steel pipe called casing. Think of them as concentric straws, for example. And between each layer of steel casing, uh, you have to put a gasket. Otherwise, what's down hole can come up between those layers of steel. So that gasket material is very important. And the current technology is to use hardened cement paste. Typical shale gas, well, uh, total length could be three or four miles and that gasket is only between an inch and two inches thick. And if a substantial part of it cracks, as cement is prone to do, then you have a potential gap in that gasket. Uh, Coming back to that issue of how long does a well have to live, from an industry point of view, the well is useful as long as it's in production, as long as it's producing oil and gas. From an environmental point of view, the well has to last forever, otherwise it leaks forever. So how much methane is escaping through these leaks. 
I know it's it's only an estimate, but what what do you figure? Uh, I don't know. We don't know. As far as I know, nobody knows. It's crucial to understand here that we don't know where many of those wells are. Those millions of wells that have been drilled around the world, that drilling began over a century ago. And records back then weren't nearly as good as they are today. So a very large percentage of those millions of wells are called lost and abandoned. This is an unsolved problem. You wrote an op-ed in the New York Times not so long ago uh, saying that natural gas is starting to look like less of a bridge to future technology and more of a gangplank. What do you mean and what's the solution? Well, I'm a civil engineer, so I know bridges. A bridge is a man-made structure which has a abutment at one end where you're standing and an abutment at the other end where you're trying to get to. And the bridge is a structure that's supposed to save you from falling into what's in between where you are and where you're going. So the analogy that's often used by the industry, by politicians, and even some green groups, that natural gas is a bridge to the future makes no logical sense. Because in this case, the bridge, which is supposed to take you over something you're not supposed to fall into, is composed of something you don't want to fall into, natural gas, which is a fossil fuel. So the longer we keep increasing the production of any fossil fuel, like gas or oil from shale, the longer we're making the ravine, the river, the gulf that we're trying to get across. So in that sense, it is a game plan. We might not ever finish the bridge. We might get halfway across and we've run out of climate change time. Tony Ingrafia is an engineering professor at Cornell. Tony, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Steve, it was great to be with you. Thank you for the honor. Coming up, heading to the shoreline in search of vaccines and warriors against climate change. That's next on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Sea otters are cuddly, cute, and playful. But research from the University of California at Santa Cruz claims they could also hold one of the keys to mitigating climate disruption. Two scientists from UCSC have demonstrated the crucial role that sea otters play in the health of one of the ocean's great carbon sinks, kelp forests. If we want to sequester more carbon from the atmosphere, they say, we need more otters. Joining us now from the University of California at Santa Cruz is Chris Wilmers, professor of environmental studies. Professor, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Glad to be here. So sea otters as climate warriors. What made you think to connect the otter with climate disruption? Well, I do a lot of work on the effects of predators more generally on ecosystems. And one thing we've been seeing for a long time now is that predators can have a sort of dramatic impact on plant populations through their intermediary impact on their prey. So when otters eat sea urchins, which are their main diet, for instance, we see the kelp forests bounce back to life. And my research has also focused a bit on climate change. And so I thought, I wondered if there was a connection between the two. So explain to me the specifics of your study and and the findings that you have. Well, over 40 years or so, my co-author and colleague Jim Estes has been looking at the effects of sea otters on coastal ecosystems. And what he's shown over that time period is that when you have otters, you get these abundant kelp forests. When you remove otters from the system, the kelp forests disappear. And what's novel about this study is that we then looked at how that influences carbon. 
And what we found is that there's a dramatic drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere when you have sea otters and all that underwater kelp using that carbon. And what's the mechanism? I mean, the sea otters are related to urchins, are related to kelp. Explain that for me, please. So sea otters eat sea urchins. When you have sea otters around, you have fewer sea urchins, and the ones that you do have, they sort of hide in the crevices between rocks. If you get rid of the sea otters, the sea urchins come out from the crevices and they start crawling along the seafloor, eating all the kelp they can find. Their populations increase and the kelp declines to nearly nothing. So currently, what is the population of sea otters and what would a healthy population look like? Well, the area that we were doing our work is the, mainly the Aleutian Islands, but then also the coast of North America down to the Canadian uh, U.S. border. And in that area, uh, there used to be probably a few hundred thousand sea otters. Uh, that population has declined dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years by a somewhat mysterious switch in feeding patterns by killer whales. Killer whales? Killer whales, yeah. So the idea or the theory is that killer whales used to eat primarily the large baleen whales. And uh, after World War II, there was a tremendous increase in whaling, which depleted um, most of the large baleen whales over much of the North Pacific. And so by the 60s or 70s, there were very few baleen whales remaining. And so the killer whales that remained uh, switched to a new food source, and that turned out to be harbor seals. And then they depleted harbor seals, and so they switched to feeding on fur seals. And then they depleted fur seals, and they switched to feeding on stellar sea lions. And then finally, they depleted stellar sea lions, and they switched to feeding on otters. They drove the otter population down from a few hundred thousand to uh, just a, a few thousand. So intensive whaling is indirectly connected to more climate disruption. Yeah, in a sense, you could say that. There's been a sort of chain of cascading events that initiated back in the 1950s with heavy whaling. Given the current population of otters and their appetite for sea urchins that would otherwise eat kelp, how much carbon do you think that they are helping stay sequestered? What might that be worth on the international carbon exchanges? Well, we did a calculation in our study using the current price of carbon on the European carbon market, and we valued the amount of carbon that sea otters directly sequester using that value, and it came out to be somewhere in between 205 to $400 million just in the carbon sequestered by the living kelps themselves. How might you use that dollar amount to affect the status of sea otters? Well, the hope would be that you'd be able to use that money to reintroduce sea otters and restore the kelp forests. Right now, carbon markets are, are, are very young and they're still evolving, and I'm not sure you could actually sell that carbon uh, on the market today. But as these carbon markets evolve, we hope that there'll be mechanisms to do that kind of thing. And that kind of money could be used to figure out how to reintroduce otters or restore them to historic populations and get back all that carbon into the ocean. So what do you hope will come out of this research? I think one of the main things that I hope comes out of this research is an appreciation for the influence that animals can have on the carbon cycle. So far, most of our climate change models don't incorporate animals. They incorporate plants, certainly. Uh, but animals have been largely overlooked because it's been assumed that 
they're bit players in the carbon cycle. But I, what I think this study shows is that the role of animals can be quite significant and that ecologists more generally should be looking the world over for roles that animals might be playing in other kinds of ways and other kinds of ecosystems to influence carbon cycling. Chris Wilmers is a professor of environmental studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Thank you so much for taking this time today. Thank you. Think medical breakthrough and you're apt to picture a high-tech lab with gleaming steel equipment. But medical advances can also come from nature, such as the seaside. In Southern California, researchers have found a way to grow an unusual marine mollusk that may play a major role in future vaccines. Lauren Summer went to explore this unique laboratory site. Her story comes to us from the IEEE Spectrum magazine, National Science Foundation special, The New Medicine, Hacking Our Biology. When you think of cancer treatment, this probably isn't the scene you'd imagine. But this rocky strip of land in Port Wyneme in Southern California is home to a unique medical facility. So what you're seeing right now is, uh, this is our primary production seawater system. Essentially we pump uh, nutrient-rich seawater right over here from the port. Uh, We really just remove big particulate matter uh, before it flows into our production tanks. Brandon Linsicum is the aquaculture manager for Stellar Biotechnologies. We're standing next to large tanks just a stone's throw from the Pacific Ocean. Take a look at some of these guys. Um, okay, so this is what you've been waiting to see. This is Megathera crinulata right here, the giant keyhole limpet. Linsicum reaches into the tank and pulls out a round, purplish animal that looks like an abalone. They do have a hard shell, but they have this mantle tissue that they can fold up over their shell, so when you touch these guys, they are almost soft. Yeah, it's almost uh, a little, little slimy. A little slimy, right? A little bit. The limpet he's holding weighs almost a pound, but it takes years for them to grow this large. So I'll show you some of our up-and-coming limpets right here. So if you take a look in this tank, these guys are, are fairly slow-growing, but you can see them. These guys are about three and a half years old or so. So we do, we produce these guys from sperm and egg. Microscopic sperm and egg, these guys are teeny tiny. This is the only place in the world where giant keyhole limpets are bred and grown. And there are thousands here, each with their own unique tracking number. The question is, why? It pretty much is a a nondescript member of the local California coastal environment, but uh, turns out to be really important when it comes to medical technology. Frank Oakes is the CEO of Stellar Biotechnologies. He says what's special about giant keyhole limpets is their blood, or more specifically, something found in their blood called KLH. Keyhole limpet hemocyanin. And the hemocyanin is the protein from the blood, analogous to hemoglobin in humans. This unique blood protein, KLH, has been studied since the 1950s, and it's played a major role in immune system research. But the keyhole limpet is only found in Southern California, which means there's a limited supply. It was harvested routinely for extraction of its blood, and with little regard to understanding the animal, its importance in the wild, or the perishability of the the wild population. 
Oakes has a background in aquaculture, so he began studying how to breed limpets in captivity. In the late 1990s, we started work on developing non-lethal extraction methods for the animal so we can take the blood without killing them. Getting limpets to grow in captivity was no easy task. Oakes had to learn how to coax them into reproducing. He had to learn what conditions they grow best in. And because limpets are part of medical research, there has to be strict quality control to prevent contamination. Today, thousands of limpets go through their entire life cycle in a controlled system, giving blood several times a year. From a 50-animal lot, we get about a liter of serum. And from that liter of serum, we will typically produce about 20 grams of protein. At retail value, that 20 grams of protein for us is approximately $100,000. Why would a blood protein be so valuable? Without it, a lot of the vaccines will not work. Herb Chow is a vice president at Stellar Biotechnologies. He says to understand why KLH is useful, you have to go back to the early days of vaccines. Medical researchers would take something harmful like a virus, kill it, and then inject it into your body. Your immune system would see the inactive virus and would learn how to attack it. Except if you use the dead virus or dead bacteria, it does accomplish that activations or stimulation, but it comes with a price. The price is some level of toxicities. People get sick because the toxin is still there. So researchers took viruses apart, pulling off the small chunks that your immune system could attack. They injected those smaller pieces as the vaccine. But there was a problem. It's too small. They don't see it. So it becomes stealth to your immune system. And like a stealth plane, if your body doesn't see it, it can't learn to attack it. But attach those virus pieces to KLH, and it's like attaching reflectors to the plane. By putting two together, all of a sudden the radar starts seeing it. And your immune system mounts an attack or starts making antibodies. KLH itself is neutral and doesn't harm you. Chow says it's being used in vaccine research for Alzheimer's and autoimmune diseases. It's also being used in cancer vaccine research. The problems with the, with the cancer cells is a lot of the antigen that I express on the cancers are actually your own tissues. It just overexpresses on the cancer cells, but the body sees them, this is my own. I shouldn't react to it. Cancer cells are, in essence, your own cells. So your immune system doesn't see them as foreign invaders. And as such, it fools your immune system to kind of ignore them and let them keep growing. And when a tumor mass gets to be a certain size, then your body no longer be able to handle it. So doctors use treatments like radiation and chemotherapy, which target all fast-growing cells in your body. But Chow says that's why cancer vaccines have such promise. It's something that it's, it's high on the radar screen because of the characteristics that it can differentiate the normal cells from the tumor cells and be able to target the treatments to the tumors. Cancer vaccines could train your body to only attack the cancer cells. Chow says the challenge is finding something on the cancer cells that would help your immune system differentiate them from your own cells. And there are differences. You know, it used to be we're looking at the differences on the cell surface, and it seems like that difference is not big enough. There are some differences. Now we're going inside the cells, looking at a lot of zillion molecules inside the cells, and you find more differences. 
Today, most of the cancer vaccines that use KLH are still in the research phase or in clinical trials. But CEO Frank Oakes says the role of KLH is looking promising. The long-term commercial demand for KLH looks very promising because it's a key ingredient in a wide variety of drugs that are currently in clinical development. The challenge is that vaccines take decades to develop, and not all of them come to market. Unfortunately, in this business, more drugs fail in clinical development than succeed. But Oak says with the growth in cancer vaccine research, there's a good chance that this mollusk from Southern California will eventually play a role in keeping us healthy. In Port Wyneme, I'm Lauren Summer. Lauren's story on the Keyhole Limpet comes from the IEEE Spectrum Magazine, National Science Foundation special, The New Medicine, Hacking Our Biology. Nature likes to go with the flow, but sometimes people get in the way with their bird-brained ideas. In this week's Bird Note, Michael Stein takes us to one place where the natural flow has been disrupted. When Florida became a state in 1845, the legislature declared the Everglades, America's largest wetland, totally worthless. But today, we know how important wetlands are. They soak up stormwater. They remove toxic chemicals that contaminate drinking water. And they're home to a bird called the snail kite, which in the United States is found only in South Florida. Over the years, the slowly flowing river of grass has been replaced by a series of reservoirs with little water movement. The remaining Everglades are only half their original size. Before we altered them, they filled during the summer rainy season and gradually dried out during winter and spring. The aptly named snail kite feeds only on the apple snail. But the snails don't flourish in places that are permanently underwater. They do best with seasonal wet and dry periods and flowing water. So the snail kite is endangered in the Everglades because most remaining habitat is too wet and stagnant. The kite, like the snail, depends on variable flows and wet and dry seasons. It's a classic boom and bust species, one that thrives when wetlands are allowed to function in a natural way. I'm Michael Stein. There are some photos of snail kites on our website, LOE.org. Coming up, flying high on the hunt with some big birds. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
Although Benjamin Franklin thought the turkey would make an appropriate national emblem for the United States, we wound up with the bald eagle. Hardly a surprise, as eagles have fascinated and inspired humans throughout history. Nature writer Stephen Bodio fell under their spell and wrote a book that details the complicated place of eagles in a variety of human cultures. The richly illustrated work called The Eternity of Eagles takes us from Central Asia, where Kazakh tribes hunt wolves with the help of eagles, to the American West, where herders once shot them from aircraft to protect their flocks. Steve Bodio joins us now from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome to Living on Earth, Steve. Well, glad to be here. So tell me, what makes an eagle an eagle? I mean, is this just a name, or is there some real biological distinction between eagles and uh, the other birds of prey? I'm thinking of goshawks and harriers, all kinds of other birds of prey. The word eagle covers 80-odd species, depending on your taxonomy. We use it in English to mean an awful lot of things, almost more cultural than biological, large bird of prey. We also call various things eagles that might be better called hawks or harriers or giant kites or even something completely unique. On the other hand, the truest eagles, the aquila eagles, the eagles we first called eagles, and their relatives are a very distinct bunch of large, intelligent, active predators, usually with feathered legs. They're biologically related, you know, birds, a natural evolutionary group. So there's the essential eagle, and there's the broad, constructed concept eagle. So what's your favorite eagle? My favorite eagle is the golden eagle. That's the eagle that really is eternally, metaphorically, with our culture. It is a a hunter, an intelligent bird, a bird that has been trained very early by human cultures as a useful and interesting companion. It can live on young herons in the, the Maritimes or on turtles on Greek islands. It was the Roman war eagle and a symbol for that. It was an enemy to some cultures and a friend to others. It is the universal eagle, I think. What's one of your favorite eagles that we may not have heard of? Favorite eagle you may not have heard of, which is barely an eagle but has the name, is the Battleur of Africa, which is related to the group called snake eagles but resembles a flying wing. It has almost no tail, huge wings. In the skies of southern and eastern Africa, there's always one up, almost like red tails soaring in the east or turkey vultures in the west, except it's moving like some sort of science fictional airplane, barely beating its wings and it's going by about 60 miles an hour, rocking slightly on the wind. They cover hundreds of miles a day with barely a flap, and they're very pretty in an exotic way. Steve, now you've spent a great deal of time in Central Asia. Please describe for us how people use eagles to hunt there. And I understand they hunt for wolves? They hunt for wolves. Their day-to-day hunting is probably more for fur animals and some food animals. Fox is probably the most popular quarry, and that's very easy. I mean, that's just like a hawk catching a rabbit once they learn how to do it. But wolves are an important stock predator in Central Asia, and most people don't have firearms, certainly didn't have them until after the fall of the Soviet Union, and an eagle is capable of killing a wolf. The eagle flies in, quickly grabs the wolf by the muzzle to immobilize its teeth, which are its only weapon, really, unlike a cat, uh, grabs it by the neck or breaks into the chest with its incredibly powerful foot and basically just uh, has it immobilized in a minute or two. The large blood vessels opened and uh, kills it very efficiently. 
What brought you to Central Asia? A lot of romantic travel people fixated on Africa or on South America young. For some reason, I was fascinated with Central Asia from the get-go. I saw a picture of a what I now know was a Kazakh herdsman in some magazine when I was about five in Boston. And the guy was wearing a clothes of, of snow leopard and had an eagle on his fist. And I just fixated on this and said to myself, not even consciously, I need to see that. I want to go there. And after the Soviet Union fell, I immediately started making queries of friends I knew who traveled. Have you seen eagles? Have you seen Kazakhs? Have you met Kazakhs? I met a really interesting couple in Brooklyn, in Brighton Beach, <laughs> who showed me films of eagles and wolves and uh, cut contacts and eventually flew out in February, midwinter, in order to make sure I was uh, able to see some hunting. Turned out to be a little late in the season, better than too early. Into Ulaanbaatar, into a night of 40 below zero, and then 600 more miles without pavement to Bayanolgi, the Kazakh's Aymag, or state of Mongolia. And a day later, I was looking at a hunting eagle perched on a truck tire and knew I had arrived. <laughs> on a truck tire, huh? On a truck tire. One of the amusing things, I, wonderful things, I think, of Central Asian eagle culture, it's incredibly pragmatic. Tire makes a great perch. You know, certain synthetics make interesting justice material. Modern uh, sort of high-tech uh, outdoor clothing is warm and can be worn underneath your traditional fur robes. And why not? And they're still doing something they've been doing for thousands of years and are happily making use of uh, modern technology. One of the fun photographs in there is the bird riding in a, a sidecar on a Russian motorcycle going out to hunt. Now tell me, how did the Kazakhs uh, train these eagles that they used to hunt? The taming is merely familiarizing. The Kazakhs do one particular odd thing. They put the bird on a, what looks like almost like a hammock rolled up, tethered at both ends. So it's on a swinging perch, hooded, to make it have to constantly be changing its grip and a little off base while they gradually expose it to humans, to children, to dogs, to horses, and to food. They feed the bird which I find interesting, on the point of a knife or out of a bowl rather than their fingers, so it's obviating being bitten or snatched easily. The taming, it goes like that. And eagles are very intelligent, and like most birds of prey, even as adults, tame down really fast. After each of those training processes, you simply teach, think of teaching a dog. You teach a bird to come when it's called. Here's the food. Whistle, whistle, here's the food. Come on, come on, come on, boy. <laughs> or, or actually, mostly girl, because one thing we haven't touched on but is a commonplace in bird of prey people, female birds of prey are larger and stronger than the males, almost inevitably. The more predatory the species, the more likely this dichotomy. Very few males are trained by the Kazakhs. And when I once asked uh, an older Kazakh, perhaps blunter than my friends of my own age, if you ever trained a male, he says, do I look like I hunt mice? <laughs> so what was it like to ride with the Kazakh Eagle tribes? Completely delightful. They're the most hospitable people in the world. I could not ride all day and all day and as fast as uh, these people could. I mean, I, I didn't grow up on horseback. But you'd go out in this freezing, freezing weather and ride over hill and rock and ice and very little vegetation, just looking for a flight of a fox and... 
you learn to really appreciate boiled mutton and hot tea with butter in it and shots of vodka by the time you came back to the uh, the houses they called their winter spending place, their adobe houses. I'll do it as long as I can afford and walk. <laughs> now, currently, what are the major threats to the world's eagles? Habitat destruction. And, of course, the unknown consequences of climactic change. I mean, if an eagle has a very small habitat, an island habitat or a marginal habitat, a change could make it really difficult. Now, I think our classical eagle, our golden, is not only unendangered, it'll thrive. It's likely to, <laughs> it's likely to outsee our species if we don't wise up. But uh, some other eagles with small ranges or... or threatened habitats, those are the ones I'd really worry about. Also, a peculiar, very ambivalent threat, ambivalent in the sense that we're trying to do it for good reasons, wind farms are a real problem for eagles. They're supposed to be clean energy, but I wonder that the ecological costs of such things as wind farms on bird populations might be more than we might be willing to pay if we understood them. Let's talk about the future of the eagle. No, better yet, let's have you read from the very end of your book, the sure. last paragraph that you have. Eagles will continue to be eagles, splendid and for the most part indifferent to our ways. Some of us will always be obsessed with them, love them, hate them, make art or friends of them. They don't care. They ask nothing but to go on their splendid old dinosaurian way, over our heads, in or out of our minds. They need us less than we need them. If we leave them a space, they cannot live in cities, though balds may yet. They may well outlive our restless species, as they predate it. If we don't, we might find that many will vanish, leaving only the eagles of the mind that we have created in their image. We will be the poorer for it, but I confess I doubt it will ever happen. I suspect it is more likely that Aquila will pass like a shadow over the last human ruins." casting a benign predator's glance at them as she hunts on down the wind. Stephen Bodio is a writer, naturalist, and falconer from New Mexico. His latest book is called An Eternity of Eagles, the human history of the most fascinating bird in the world. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. This was fun. Well, back in the spring, a team of scientists and artists at the City College of New York came up with a way to listen to glaciers as they melt, as part of a multimedia exhibit around Greenland's melting ice sheet. To help people understand the science involved, they included photography, video, and a musical method of reflecting the reality of the melting ice. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has the story. Every year, Marco Tedesco travels to Greenland to collect data on the annual melt of the ice sheet. He's a snow and ice scientist, but he has another passion. The thing I love more after science or with science, besides my family, is really music. So when Professor Tedesco found out about City Seeds, a grant program at the City College of New York that funds collaboration between professors from different fields, he saw a chance to combine those two interests. He went to the music department, looking for someone who could turn his data on Greenland's melting ice into music. I had never done anything like this before at all. That's Jonathan Pearl, a musicologist at CCNY. Although he had no experience sonifying scientific data, Professor Pearl was up for the challenge. He did some research of his own. 
I attended the International Conference of Auditory Display and met people who were immersed in representing scientific data with sound. Marco Tedesco says that when it comes to data on Greenland's melting ice, one of the most important factors is albedo. That's the capacity of a surface to reflect or absorb solar radiation. All of us, we know albedo in a very empirical way. If you walk in the sun and you're wearing a black shirt, you'll get much warmer sooner than, you know, your body wearing a white shirt. During summer in Greenland, the layer of fresh white snow on the surface begins to melt, exposing older, grayer snow and eventually blue ice. As the island's surface grows darker, it absorbs more solar radiation, increasing the overall melt. You can see this really as a Shakespearean you know, tragedy. You have the temperature that is a major killer, and it's tried to kill Lady Greenland. By itself, it's not strong enough, but then you have Mr. Albedo that kicks in, right? And then the two guys are accomplices. Rising global temperatures and albedo create a feedback loop that is devastating Greenland's ice sheet. To illustrate this, John Pearl sonified albedo and melt rate data. In the mid-1990s, the music sounds fairly calm. Uh, the technique I use in sonification is called parameter mapping, and it basically means representing some aspect of changes in the data with some changes in the sound. Albedo, uh, I decided to represent that by increasing the intensity of the lower frequencies of a, a male bass choir so that as the albedo worsens, as the ice gets darker and darker and is unable to reflect the sunlight, the lower voices become more and more intense relative to the high voices in this droning chord. And the Geiger counter is a well-known effect where these very annoying beeps and clicks get louder and more frequent and more intense. I decided to use that effect to represent uh, increasing amounts of uh, the ice sheet melting over Greenland. It's a pretty serious problem that's happening, and so I thought uh, more annoying would, would get the point home. I think we must be getting into the 2000s now, and you can hear the melting is increasing. It gets quite intense. 2012 was a mammoth year. There was record-breaking melt in 2012. Professor Tedesco says it really stands out. Like a giant basketball player walking around Times Square. Almost the entire surface of Greenland experienced melting in summer 2012. The overall melting period lasted two months longer than average, and Greenland's melt alone added a millimeter to the global sea level. To highlight the problem, Professor Pearl composed a full summer melt score. It documents the extent of Greenland's melt over time. Oh, I had a lot of fun with this one. Um, this was pretty challenging to do technically, but I figured out a way to uh, compose music so that I could have a continuous performance with a lot of notes that are happening simultaneously. It's very busy and very frenetic. I took the data, which is the amount of melting, and I have it essentially controlling how many of these notes actually can sound at any given moment. Oh, there was a spot where very minimal melting. Uh, that was the lowest amount of melting that happened in the time scale. So essentially, when, when the melting values are low, 
it suppresses the playback of most of the notes. And then as the melting values rise, in real time it causes more and more of the notes to be allowed, basically through this gate, to be allowed to play. The time scale that I'm using here is about uh, three seconds represent about uh, a year's worth of change. Uh, it's not till the very end, which we're probably getting pretty close to, at 2013, that you can pretty much hear the full musical score where all the notes are playing. done a prior version of this before I had the 2012 values and the whole arrangement was kind of more intense but as soon as I rescaled everything and added 2012 all the other years kind of paled in comparison. John Pearl has worked in all sorts of musical styles from experimental jazz to rock and roll but he says he's never heard anything quite like his glacial melt music. That may be because he had an unusual collaborator. The data I mean, I know that I didn't essentially compose this piece entirely. It's kind of composing itself by having the, the melting values determine what notes are playing at any given time and what notes aren't. In the end, the two professors presented the sonifications as part of an exhibit they called Polar Seeds. For Professor Tedesco, it was an exciting change of venue for his research. Usually my work finalizes in papers, publications, or conferences. So to be able to put together my results in an exhibit was very satisfying for me. He hopes the songs, photos, and videos will reach a broader audience than a scientific paper, and thinks that could be a good thing. Greenland's melting ice sheet is fast becoming a global problem. It's very important to understand that what happens in the Arctic, what happens in Greenland, doesn't stay really in Greenland. Greenland's contribution to sea level rise will affect people living near coasts all around the world. Professor Pearl hopes that the glacial melt music can affect how people think about global warming and its impacts. When you take the time to actually listen to it, you experience what's actually happening in a way that's more visceral and has a different kind of an impact than if you just look at a graph. There are thousands of global warming graphs and statistics out there. But given what 2012 sounded like, hearing climate change may bring the message home. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Ponce Rutch, Aaron Weeks, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.